and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I shaved my ox tears this morning. Your ox tears? It's the Scottish word for armpit. Oh. They probably pronounce it like ox tear. Probably. Or was that like biking? I don't know. I was imagining like the area between your eyebrows. I don't shave that. Well, no. But the, I don't know, that's what the word remind, made me think oh, of. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you well, know. good for you. Thank you. You know, I try to keep it fresh when I can. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I Let's not get into the hygiene, but a little bit of it is if it got long, it would be itchy. So Yeah, totally. I guess that's why I do it. Not because I'm not proud to be a, a woman <laughs> or something. Same. Like, Same. <laughs> uh, well, Courtney. We have a new case today. We do have a new case today. We have a new case, but before we have a new case, I have a question. All right, shoot. Um, And I just forgot my question, so let me pull up my questions. Oh, here we go. What is the last show you binge-watched? Oh, um... The last show that I binge watched was Anne with an E. Oh, yeah, Green Gables. Yep. I want to go so badly to um, was it is it in Prince Edward Island? Yeah, Prince Edward Island. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. Yes, I want to go so badly there. Yeah, that's very like beautiful. You know, I've done some research on like doing a vacation there, and it seemed reasonable as far as like expenses. And well, they, that's cool. Yeah, like it wasn't too expensive. I mean, it's really far away from us. Um, and they have like tons of lighthouses. Oh. Um, and you probably can see the northern lights there depending on the time of year because it's pretty far north. I don't know. If anyone that it listens to us from Prince Edward Island, that would be great if you let us know what it's like there because I really do want to go there sometime. That because would be really of nice. Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved the book when I was a kid. Yeah, I so. I reread one of them recently, like mm-hmm. within the past couple years, and I was just like, <sighs> yes, yeah, she melts my heart a little. So, yeah, Anne with an E. Mm-hmm. Oh. How about you? Um, binge watch, binge watch, binge watched. Um, there's ones that I'm constantly watching, but they're not binging. So I guess I would have to say, shit. This was my question. I don't have the answer. Um. I'll, I'll say alone. Uh, I think we've talked about that before, but mm-hmm. I just did finish the most recent season. Right. Was that my dog? Yep. Okay. Just pushed the door open a little and <laughs> made some noise. He wants to be in here all the time when we <laughs> podcast record. It's so yeah. weird. <laughs> it's either your dog or it was a ghost. So. Yeah. Well, there's four dogs at my house right now. I know. Yeah. It's they all sh- said hi to me when I got here. It's a zoo. My cousin's staying with us right now and she has two dogs and we are babysitting another dog. From a friend that's on vacation. Mm. So we have four dogs. Oh, and I was going to say hi to Kelsey from work because she just started listening to us. And I told her I would say hi to her. Hi, Kelsey. From hi, Trisha's Kelsey. work. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have anyone you want to say hi to? Um, we said hi to Nicole last time. Dead. Um, well, I guess my mom's not going to hear this because she doesn't like true crime stuff. So she doesn't listen to our podcast. But yesterday was her birthday. So happy birthday, my mom. Yay. Yes. Woohoo. All right. Well, now that we're done with the uh, opening business, you picked a new case for us. Why I don't did. you tell us just a smidge about why you picked her? 
Yeah, so I was just kind of browsing around on like like thrift books looking for books about serial killers. Um, and I saw this one and the title caught my eye um, of the book we're using. It's called Whatever Mother Says. And I actually thought initially that it was about a different case that I heard about on like a, some documentary or something. Um, so that's what I or- when I ordered it because I thought that case was really interesting. And then I learned that it wasn't that case. And so, but it's still fascinating. It's by Wensley Clarkson. Yes. So, um, and this is a Courtney episode, whereas (laughs) I didn't read the book because I've just been not being able to prioritize or, I mean, successfully prioritize everything. Um, So she helped me out this week (laughs) or this, this case. So there's two, this is a two parter Um, and she wrote this case. So it might sound a little different. I don't know nearly as much about this as Courtney does. So there's that. So thank you, Courtney, for helping me out in my time of need. Of course. It was kind of actually kind of fun to just like be able to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And I feel like telling the story also helped me like solidify the the other parts of like the the mental health pieces that we're going to talk about. Yep. Yep. So without further ado, here we go. Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross was born on March 14, 1946 in Sacramento, California. Her parents were Jim and Swanee Cross, and they were married, um, and Teresa had three older siblings. Two were, her, or two were from her mother's previous relationship, and her sister Rosemary, which must have been like her half-sister is what I'm... Full sister. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, uh, Teresa, or I'm sorry, her parents didn't have any kids together. They did. Rosemary and Teresa were both mom and dad. Okay. (laughs) All right. Already off to a great start. (laughs) So Jim worked at a local dairy making cheese, but around the time Teresa was 10, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and he had to stop working. Uh, This caused him to fall into a deep depression and he would take his frustration out on his wife and kids. So, you know, pretty early on, Teresa's world was turned upside down by this illness of her father's. Courtney, when a devastating illness like this occurs in the home, what kind of additional stressors are put on the children? So when a parent is diagnosed with a serious illness, it can completely alter the whole shape and look of a household. So children can experience a lot of fear because they just don't know what's happening or why it's happening, or they might be afraid um, that their parents might die, which I mean is a real situation with Parkinson's. It does eventually kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, But they can also be impacted by the amount of attention or care that their parent needs now. Um, That could mean that a child is getting less attention, say like from their other parent. Um, Or it could be that the child is maybe expected to help with the caregiving of a parent. And both of those can definitely lead to extra stress. Well, to make ends meet, Swanee picked up work in local shops, but her income was nowhere close to what Jim had been making, and the family's socioeconomic status had severely dropped. Um, In other words, they was a Poe. Teresa was very close with her mother, and I would imagine that her father's illness had made her and her mother very codependent on each other. When Teresa was 15, her mother collapsed in the parking lot outside of a store and died of congestive heart failure in Teresa's arms. And this was a major turning point in her life. So, Courtney, you know what I'm going to ask? Her mother passed away in her arms and her father is terminally ill. I mean, how stressful for a young person? 
very, very stressful. Losing a parent so suddenly and unexpectedly can have a profound impact on a child, and it did on Teresa. You know, anxiety about dying yourself or losing someone else that you love is a very common thing. Um, feeling dis- destabilized and not trusting others or the universe to take care of them can also happen. Um, and then another common reaction to losing a parent suddenly is a sense of abandonment. And for Teresa, her mom really was her rock and her safe place. So to lose her so young, she likely felt completely abandoned and alone, especially because her father was just not able to step up because of his own illness and depression. Yeah, imagine he fell into an even deeper depression after this. How could you not? Right, exactly. So after the death of Swanee, the family could not afford the mortgage on their home, and they moved into a tiny apartment. Teresa reported feeling very overwhelmed by the instability of home and was looking for a way out. So at 16, she dropped out of high school and married her first husband, 21-year-old Clifford Sanders. She became pregnant quickly and had her first child uh, by the name of Howard in July of 1963. Clifford and Teresa bought a tiny house and moved her father in with them as he could not continue to care for himself. The marriage was rocky from the start, with Teresa being jealous and possessive and frequently accusing Clifford of cheating on her. They argued often, and one time she claimed that Clifford punched her in the face. She reported this to police, but ultimately decided not to press charges. Um, sorry, my computer's being weird. Courtney, so you studied this case more than me. Do you believe that he did punch her in the face? Why do you think she was so possessive of Clifford? I do think it is possible that Clifford did hit her um, and that it probably happened because he was kind of pushed to his limit from their fighting. Not to say that I am in any way condoning any type of violence. There's no excuse um, for putting hands on someone. Um, But it was pretty much constant fighting all the time. And then in terms of being possessive and controlling, you know, control over others is something we are going to see become a pattern for Teresa. And my theory is that this comes from the feeling of being abandoned and alone after her mom died. This can trigger an intense fear of being abandoned or left again in other relationships. On July 6th, 1964, Teresa was pregnant with her second child and was arguing with Clifford again. She was mad that he had chosen to go out with his friends to celebrate his birthday instead of spending it with her, and then he came home drunk. By now, Clifford was sick and tired of Teresa's controlling and angry behaviors, so he told her he was done and was going to leave her. As he was preparing to leave, Teresa grabbed a rifle they had in for the house for protection and shot Clifford, killing him. She was only 18 years old. Courtney? I mean, it's certainly a quick escalation. I mean, do you have any, like insight onto what the heck just happened um i think that what she does next is very telling okay well Teresa went to find a police officer who lived nearby and stated quote i need your help i just shot my husband she claimed that while they were arguing clifford had tried to hit her while she was holding the baby and that she grabbed the gun and shot him in self-defense she was arrested and charged with his murder when her trial started in 171964, Teresa continued to claim self-defense and played up her pretty features, youth, and being pregnant. Her sister-in-law, Lydia, testified that Clifford was not violent, rarely drank, and that this was not the first time Teresa had fired a gun at him. After only one and a half hours of deliberation, the, jur- the jury found Teresa not guilty 
and she was free to go. She must have been a pretty compelling witness. I think she was, right? Put yeah. a 18-year-old pregnant girl wearing a nice dress into the, the jury box who says that this mean alcoholic husband was going to hurt her. And her baby. And her baby. Yeah. Yeah. I personally think that she just didn't want him to leave her, so she stopped him from leaving. I mean, it sounds like a um, battered wife syndrome, but in reverse. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. She did not want to move back into the house where she had killed her husband, so she took baby Howard and her father and moved to the Rio Lindo district in North Sacramento. There she gave birth to her second child, Sheila, on March 13, 1965. It wasn't long before Teresa was looking for another man and started dating a Marine named Robert Knorr. Teresa got pregnant again and gave birth to their third child. Her name was Susan in September of 1966. This caused a big commotion with Robert's family as um, they were not married when Susan was born. So Teresa and Robert got married in a small ceremony that year. In the next two years, Teresa gave birth to two more children, a son, William, in September of 67, and another son, Robert, in December 1968. At this time, Teresa was only 22 years old and had five young children. Courtney, do you think she had so many kids because she wanted them? Or, I'm not sure. This is a lot of children in a short amount of time. My guess would be that there's a combination of factors that led to her having so many children. Um, this was the 1960s, and having children was sort of just expected as the thing you do once you get married. And because of the time, she also likely didn't have easy access to adequate birth control, especially not having a lot of money as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also possible that she genuinely did want a lot of children. You know, she idolized her own mother, and she might have believed that being a mother herself would maybe honor her or keep her connected in some way. Well, Robert Knorr was an active duty Marine and spent time fighting during the Vietnam War. It was reported that the things he experienced in Vietnam stuck with him, and when he returned, he did have a violent streak. He would verbally and physically attack Teresa and the children. By the end of 1970, Teresa was pregnant with baby number six, a daughter named Terry, and was finalizing her divorce with Robert. He would be in and out of the children's lives for the next few years before most contact was essentially stopped. Teresa was married and divorced twice more before 1973. At that time, Teresa and her six kids moved to Orangevale to live with Teresa's new beau, a wealthy newspaper executive named Cher Chester Harris. When the children were young, they recalled their mother as being a very loving and engaged um, mother. She would play with them, take them to ice cream at the local Dairy Queen, and um, took it. One second. Oh, sorry. Sorry, my screen looked weird for a minute. <laughs> Let me try that again. She would play with them, take them to ice cream at the local Dairy Queen, and took good care of them. Teresa was prone to mood swings and unpredictable behavior, and at times, she would leave her children all night with whatever man she was currently with and go out partying. She was jealous and controlling of her partners and could be a strict parent, but her kids adored her. She had saved them from their abusive, she had saved them from their abusive father, Robert. And that meant a lot to them. But things started to change around the time that Chester came into the picture. Chester had an avid interest in the occult. And for a while, Teresa was happy to join him in this interest. But then began obsessively reading the Bible. It is reported that her temper started to get worse. 
It was also around this time that Teresa started drinking heavily and put on a significant amount of weight. She no longer felt attractive, and taking care of six children started to feel like a burden. Then, little Terry, only six years old, revealed that she had been uh, being molested by her older brother, Howard, who was 13 at the time. Teresa was outraged and beat Howard severely, including breaking a chair over his back. This was the start of the bad things to come. Courtney, what should we, you know, what should she have done instead of beating Howard in this situation? Well, one thing that we discussed um, when we were covering um, Gacy last time um, is that children generally do not commit sexual acts on other children unless they've experienced their own abuse. And, of course, this is not always the case, but there was some suspicion that Teresa's um, sort of second husband, Robert, may have molested Howard um, when he was young. And so, really, the best things that Teresa could have done were to take both Howard and Terry to therapy to process what had happened and set very firm boundaries with increased supervision at home to ensure that all the children were safe. And depending on the outcomes of therapy... It could have been helpful for Howard to spend time in a specialized program or maybe to live in a different home, such as like with his father or grandparents, um, for at least temporarily um, while everything was getting settled. Of course, these recommendations are based on the type of services that exist today. Um, And I would be surprised if this type of treatment was easily accessible back in 1976. I mean, do you think that Back in 1976, psychologists were aware of the phenomenon of when children are displaying these behaviors, it's because they're learned behaviors? Or do you think that's more of a a newer thing? Because when you think about, like, how police pretty much ignored sexual assaults back then, I mean, I don't know how seriously it was taken in situations like this when it's children on children. I think it was sort of starting to emerge Mm -hmm. as as a well-known phenomenon, really kind of an in the 60s and 70s is when people started talking a little bit more about like childhood sexual abuse mm-hmm. um, and it kind of got on people's radars. But but you're right. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a widespread, well-known thing. I mean, I don't know that it is today, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't really aware until um, getting into the mental health field or going to therapy or working where I work now at a CAC that... Um, a lot of the times when children have these things going on um, that they've learned them from someone. Mm -hmm. So that was news to me and that made me sad. (laughs) Yeah. So understandably. Yeah. Uh, Well, not long after Howard's beating, Terry recalled a time when her mother got angry when the mom of one of Terry's friends came over and offered some hand-me-down clothes Teresa accused Terry of telling her friends that they were poor and she wasn't a good mom. As a result, Teresa made Terry strip naked, dragged her through the house, bound her with rope, and forced her brothers to hold the rope down so she couldn't move, and then whipped her with the willow branch until Terry passed out. That escalated quickly. It did escalate very quickly. It really was almost like a switch was just flipped in Teresa's mind at that point. Soon... Teresa's erratic behaviors and mood swings got worse. She started accusing her daughter Susan of worshiping the devil and plotting to kill her. Because of Chester's influence of bringing the occult into the home, she accused them of inappropriate behavior, and this eventually led to the end of Teresa and Chester's relationship. Shortly after the breakup, Teresa experienced what was described as a, quote, nervous breakdown. 
She would leave for days at a time, with 14-year-old Howard being left in charge of caring for the rest of the children. She would stay in cheap motels and drink heavily. One time, she showed up after being gone for four days with the police officer and claimed that Howard had attacked her. Pretty soon, she stopped going out and instead became very depressed and refused to get out of bed. She would not take a shower or get dressed for weeks and refused to leave the house. Other times, she would make all of her children get into the car so she could drive to a bar <clears throat> and then get too drunk to drive and pass out. Their family had to wait in the car all night until she woke up. Her moods and decisions became more and more erratic and unpredictable. Courtney, what do you think is going on with Teresa mentally? I think there are a number of things going on for Teresa at this point. It is clear that she fell into a deep depression after the breakup with Chester. Sadness, low energy, no interest in doing things, sleeping too much, and neglecting basic hygiene are all symptoms of major depressive disorder. Um, And she'd experienced that before, of course, after the death of her mother, so it wasn't a new feeling for her. And then there's also her alcohol. Like, her alcoholism got really bad around this time, and people often use substances to self-medicate and numb difficult feelings. And I believe that Teresa was doing this. Getting wasted allowed her to stop thinking about feeling abandoned by Chester, being depressed, and feeling resentful towards Susan for kind of causing the breakup in her mind. And then in addition, both major depression and severe alcohol abuse can cause psychotic symptoms like delusional beliefs and paranoid behavior, like believing that Howard attacked her, even though that didn't happen. So you think that was a lie? Yes. Okay. I I don't know. You read the book, I didn't, (laughs) so I don't know much about Howard at this point. Even though she would spend days in bed, she ruled the house with an iron fist. Without Chester, all of her anger and jealousy and control was targeted at her children. By this time, Howard was 14 and 190 pounds. That's a big kid. He was a big kid. Yeah. Was he a fat kid, or was he just, like, very, was he tall? He was, he was, yeah, he was tall and big and just burly. Okay. And his mom realized that she could no longer physically control him. So instead, she enlisted him to hound out her punishments on her behalf. He would often be tasked with physical punishments for the younger children, like punching, hitting, or spanking with a wooden board. Being the oldest and the biggest, none of the younger children dared stand up to him. Yet, despite his size, he never hit his mother. But he also would never even consider not following through when she told him to do something. Howard said this about his mother. Quote, if my mother loved you, she loved you greatly. But if you were on the outs with my mother, she would make you feel like you were all alone in the universe, that nobody cared about you and you weren't worth anything. So you always wanted to be on the good side of my mother. So he's 14 and she's making him beat the children. Yes. Is there anything you want to say about that? I think it is one, another way of, you know, having control. Um, so he's like literally. the con- she's not only has control over the younger kids, she has control over her oldest son by making him beat the younger kids. Right. Yes. And also, I think it speaks a little bit to her physical health problems and that she just at times wasn't physically able to hand out some of the punishments that she wanted. Do you think that um, this control need for control came from? I mean, like, like, let's look at her childhood she had no control over her father's illness and she had no control over her mother's death so control Mm -hmm. made her feel better I mean it seems pretty obvious yeah exactly Mm -hmm. as we come 
to learn through all these cases, the need for control is just so like forefront. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a theme we see again and again with these killers. Yeah. All of the children were now in school and teachers and neighborhood parents took notice that something wasn't quite right. The children were skinny and malnourished and would later report that their mother was very inconsistent in what she would feed them. At times she would make full meals for the family to eat together, but sometimes she would refuse to leave the house for groceries and the kids survived on junk food snacks and meals they could get while playing at a friend's house. Food was also used as a punishment. Sometimes it was withheld, and other times Teresa would force-feed her kids large amounts of food, and if they threw up, she would make them eat the vomit as well. At one point in, uh, at one point in time, all of the children had shaved heads, and at different times, Teresa would force them to wear strangely specific clothing that was not in style. Teresa did not allow anyone outside the family to enter the house and slammed the door in the faces of those who did try to intervene or offer help. Child Protective Services investigated the family several times, but Teresa convinced them that it was fine every every time. So, is Teresa sadistic? I mean, what is she? Why is she wanting to punish everyone? I mean, like you said, it's absolutely about control. Um, I believe that Teresa shows a lot of narcissistic traits, including the need to be powerful and above others. But she was a very fragile narcissist. Um, and very reactive to any type of criticism or rejection. Um, and that, I think, comes back to that abandonment fear um, that comes from losing her mother and things like that. And so by controlling everything in her children's lives, she was able to feel more powerful and to ensure that they would not leave her. With Howard too big to beat on, Teresa turned attention to her two eldest daughters, Sheila and Susan. They were young teens now and starting to grow into attractive young women. Teresa, who was now in her 30s and 40s, was 5'4 and over 200 pounds. She was intensely jealous of her daughter's youth and beauty and became fixated on the idea that they were going to be promiscuous and sinful. Teresa started to prevent them from going to school and they were rarely allowed to leave the house at all. When they did, upon return, they would be interrogated and beaten. Susan ran away repeatedly during this time, but always ended up back home somehow. When she was 15, Susan ran away again and got arrested. She told the police about her mother's abuse, and she talked to CPS social worker, begging begging to be taken into foster care. They didn't believe her, and she was returned to Teresa's custody. Things got really bad for Susan after that. So this poor kid, it reminds me somewhat of Anthony Sowell's sisters, you know, the one that burnt down the bedroom in her house to get out of there. There are definitely some parallels between the two. And unfortunately, this pattern of trying to escape and being brought right back was and is very common. You know, Susan clearly was struggling with her mental health. And her brother Howard actually tried several times to convince his mom that she needed help. But because she was, quote, crazy and Teresa could present as charming and motherly, the people who were supposed to help her just didn't believe her. And of course, this was way before the Me Too movement and right around the beginning of the Satanic Panic movement um, in the 1980s, which likely also had an impact on how she was treated since, you know, Teresa was accusing her of being into witchcraft and, and all of that. Teresa repeatedly accused Susan of having made a deal with the devil. 
She would make her stay up all night reading and reciting Bible verses and often spoke about inviting over priests to perform an exorcism. She also accused her of sleeping around and having STIs, which is what they call STDs now. When Susan was 17, Teresa was jealous of how thin and pretty she was. So she forced her to eat four boxes worth of mac and cheese in one sitting to gain weight. Okay, that's a lot. It is a lot. A few weeks later, not satisfied with the results, she had Robert Jr. hold Susan's arm behind her back while her brother Billy punched her. Then Teresa joined in and punched her in the stomach with all of her force. But that wasn't the end of this attack. Teresa then pulled out a silver twenty-two pistol and shot her daughter in the chest. The bullet passed through her ribs and lodged against her spine. Now, like most mothers, Teresa then jumps into action. She doesn't call an ambulance. No, she maneuvered Susan into the bathtub and removed her clothes and looked at her handiwork. She told the other children, quote, just keep your mouth shut. If we have to get rid of the body, we will. All of the other children were too afraid of their mother to even think about going to the authorities. Somehow Susan did not die that night. She remained in the bathtub with a pillow and a blanket for a month. A month. A month. A month. Yep. During this time, Teresa's behaviors flipped again, and she began gently taking care of Susan and her wound. She cleaned and bandaged the entry wound, gave her antibiotics and even some pain relivers. She did not she did not allow the other kids into the room, claiming that they would catch diseases from Susan. Yeah. So one thing just to kind of point out here is that Teresa's kind and caregiving behaviors were not out of concern for Susan's health and safety. They were very selfish and self-serving. You know, on the one hand, caring for Susan would prevent her having to explain or deal with having a daughter who was dead. And on the other hand, by switching up her treatment of Susan, Teresa was manipulating her into forgiving her mother and thus staying quiet and obedient about what happened. Yeah, it's seriously like battered women's syndrome. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Different name. I don't know what it would be called in this, but... I looked at same up, idea. Yeah, um, I looked up battered child syndrome, and that's something different. Oh, um, but yeah, that was my logical place that I went. Yeah, mm-hmm. Howard by this time was living on his own with his girlfriend, but was still a regular presence at the Nor House. He wasn't there when Susan was shot. Teresa forced her kids to lie and say that Susan had tried to stab her sister Sheila, and that Sheila was the one who shot Susan in self defense. Of course, they all went along with it. That's where we're going to stop her today. Yeah. She's in the bathtub. She is. For a month. After being shot by her mother. And then like sort of wounded or, nur- or nursed. Nur- nourished, wounded, back to health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fucked up. Yeah. And just wait till next week. It gets, it gets more. It gets more next week. It does. All right. Well, anything else you want to say? No, I think that about covers it. Okay, stay safe. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.